Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. The COVID-19 pandemic has created unprecedented challenges for people and governments all over the world, as well as massive new demands for social protection. It has also sparked an extraordinary collective effort to track social protection developments, extract analysis of trends from huge datasets, delve into the details of implementation and lessons learned, and most importantly, share all of this knowledge to inform more effective responses. Our team at socialprotection.org has played a role in that collective effort, hosting a dedicated online community, webinars, papers and conferences devoted to sharing knowledge on COVID-19. And this month, socialprotection.org is celebrating its sixth anniversary, so what better time to focus in on the remarkable efforts of social protection experts to mobilise knowledge and provide advice to inform the response to the pandemic? This will be the first of two episodes that explore that question, so we'll be putting our guests on the spot and asking them for their takes. Our guests today are Maya Hamad and Edward Archibald. Maya is a researcher at the International Policy Centre for Inclusive Growth, which earlier this year launched an online, interactive dashboard that tracks COVID-19 responses in the Global South. Edward Archibald is an independent consultant working with the Social Protection Approaches to COVID-19 Expert Advice Helpline, better known by its acronym SPACE, which has been working to advise governments across the globe. Edward and Maya, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jo. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can I start by asking you both to tell us a little bit about your work during the pandemic? Thanks, Joe. Yeah, well, in, in March or April of 2020, and as we all know, countries across the globe began considering the use or adaptation of social protection systems and, and programs at that time and to respond to, to COVID-19. So at that time, FCDO and GIZ jointly set up an advisory helpline, and, and as you said, it was called SPACE. So it had a multidisciplinary expert team, and the aim was to support decision-makers across national governments, um, donors, uh, implementing partners with thinking through how to establish uh, or maintain or uh, adapt their systems or their programs to meet these needs. So we did this through several different ways. Some of it was through bespoke clinics where we provided advice to to one or more of those actors. Uh, We also developed a suite of guidance documents my first assignment with space that happened to be providing advice to FCDO in, in Zambia. And the request consisted of a really rapid half-day appraisal of all these documents related to the proposed social protection response to COVID in Zambia. And central to that was this 40 or 50 page concept note that the UN in Zambia had prepared. It was a, it was a one UN approach. So we analysed the document and and prepared for a call the next day with with FCDO Zambia, and we used SPACE's strategy matrix that had been developed. And then we held a clinic the next day with FCDO Zambia and then immediately wrote up the analysis and the discussion, had to turn that around within 24 hours or so. So it all happened within basically two days that we had to get across the situation, analyse the options, have the call, and then write it up and, and deliver it to them. And that's when I realized that there was going to be a, you know, a demand for our services, but also that we were going to be providing very rapid advice. So in terms of mobilizing and sharing knowledge, Space published around 30 documents, guidance or analysis. 
but also some other incredibly useful resources, uh, such as a living catalogue of documents related to COVID-19, social protection responses separated by countries and themes. It's, it's a phenomenal piece of work. Maya, what about you? Can you tell me a little bit about the IPCIG dashboard and the work you've been doing? Sure. So from March 2020 until March 2021, the IPCIG was working on a dashboard of national social protection responses to COVID across the entire Global South. The dashboard is currently online, available at socialprotection.org. It has more than a thousand measures, the majority of which are social assistance, followed by labor market and then social insurance measures. The dashboard has several indicators, which have actually been prepared in collaboration with space colleagues. These indicators analyze measures from a shock responsive perspective and cover topics such as the target groups of each measure, the coverage, how adequate benefits are, calculating that utilizing a percentage of minimum wage or as a percentage of minimum household expenditure. So for me personally, as an Arabic speaker, I was involved mostly in data collection and collation for the dashboard's MENA region. And one thing that's really uh, good about the dashboard is that it's very interactive. It allows you to filter in based on the social protection instrument component or the region, which is very good for researchers and just generally people who are interested to see what countries have actually implemented throughout the last year or so. What are your thoughts on what it takes for this kind of research and evidence mobilizing this kind of knowledge so that it can influence policymaking? So actually, what we've worked on at the IPC was we've utilized the dashboard we've had to prepare a report for the Bureau for Policy and Program Support at the UNDP about the lessons learned and the innovative practices that have emerged from COVID and how they facilitated, most importantly, the inclusion of groups that were traditionally excluded in social protection in normal times prior to COVID. And based on all of the country examples that we've collated in the dashboard, we try to highlight some of the innovations in beneficiary identification, in registration, in payment modalities and communication, but also provide some recommendations for how these practices can be optimally implemented and ensure better inclusion in the future or in future crises or just general social protection uh, practices. But um, generally, it's always better to zoom in on what's relevant to the country, but also to transform them into um, accessible formats, such as briefs and short presentations. And from our work at the IPC, we've noted that lots of policymakers have a preference towards one-on-one technical sessions where examples can be presented, but there's scope for questions and answers and more discussion about really what works and what would be more suitable um, in a specific country context. So following on from that then, Ed, can you talk a little bit about how you've seen the advisory work that you and your colleagues from SPACE have been providing and how that has actually interacted with decision-making on the part of governments around the social protection response to COVID? Yeah, it's a good question, Joe. I think probably a couple of examples come to mind. One was with Yemen, 
where we were providing advice to the Social Fund for Development, which is a national agency. Uh, and FCDO had requested that, had sort of brokered the engagement that we had with them, introduced us to, to the Social Fund for Development. And, and then we worked with the Social Fund for, for a number of months. And the, the work there was reviewing some of their approach to different areas of social protection and how they prioritize their work, how they target it. And it was viewed by our counterparts there as extremely useful. Um, that's the feedback that they provided throughout that time. It gave them some heft, I think, on how they could strengthen their approach to gender. And they're now taking forward our recommendations in that regard. And the second main area of recommendations was in relation to the opportunities to foster stronger linkages with the humanitarian sector, uh, and particularly with regard to the interoperability agenda. And so they're also taking some of that forward. Now, a couple of things to mention. One is we were deliberately pragmatic with our recommendations. We were not compiling this long laundry list of best practices that might never have been implemented. So instead, we worked really closely with them to understand what their constraints were and, and what would be achievable. Of course, there has been a lot of attention throughout the pandemic on the COVID response, the good and maybe less good practices that have emerged, particularly around social protection, lots of talk about the opportunities for how social protection can advance. Can I put you on the spot now and ask you each to name the two most significant changes to social protection that have emerged through this response? I'd say the two key changes we've seen in the Global South are definitely digitization and more coordination. Digitization is something we've seen used more in registration, in payments, but also in communication methods, in case management and grievance redress mechanisms. In most countries that we've looked at in the dashboard and in the report that I mentioned earlier, this wasn't used or not used as widely prior to COVID. And I have to emphasize here that digitization is, of course, a double-edged sword, as it can like simultaneously include but also exclude some people. But generally, what we've seen from COVID is that countries that had online registration systems or that created them were able to deliver assistance more rapidly than countries that didn't. And two great examples here are Togo and Jordan. Also, countries that relied on digital payment modalities rather than in-person ones offered firstly faster, but also safer delivery options for uh, the recipients. So what we've seen is that COVID resulted in a shift to digital payments, mostly through bank transfers, but also through a lot of utilization of mobile money, which wasn't prevalent as much in a lot of countries. And what we've seen is that countries had to issue new regulations to ease uh, the due diligence process surrounding know your customer regulations and create tiered accounts to enable things such as remote onboarding of individuals and allowing bank accounts to be opened with alternative IDs. And in terms of coordination, one thing we've looked at in the report is the creation of social protection emergency response committees in a lot of countries. And this would usually be led by either the Ministry of Finance or the relevant ministry overseeing social protection. And these committees were vital because they facilitated coordination across different sectors between different governmental institutions, as well as coordination with the private sector and both local and international NGOs. So a good example here that I can think of is in Jordan, 
where the state-led Zakat Fund and the main in-kind assistance NGO and the Jordanian Red Crescent were all members of the National Emergency Response Committee headed by the Ministry of Social Affairs. And what that led to is coordination of the response, each entity knowing the beneficiaries that the other is providing assistance to, and also unification of the package provided within the in-kind assistance and the value. So that's one really good example that I can think of. Yeah, I'm just going to build on my points because Malawi was an interesting example in terms of collaboration and coordination between development and humanitarian actors. And the point I specifically want to mention is there were pre-existing relationships. There was pre-existing work over about five or six years prior to COVID that came to the fore in the crisis because of of those relationships um, that were already in place, the understandings between agencies. So coordination wasn't yet formalised, but people knew each other and and they knew the respective strengths of individuals and, and agencies. And that played out in Malawi where there was a decision by government to divide up some of the design of an urban cash transfer program according to the comparative advantage of the different agencies. So UNICEF took you know, leadership on the component in relation to payment mechanisms, because they'd worked on that a lot. I think WFP and ILO worked on gathering and analysing data to understand where these hotspots were in in urban centres and and what sort of transfer level uh, would be needed. So that was a really interesting example. And I think it speaks to the value of uh, relationships established and and developed over a period of time. Another key change that, that I've seen is the growth of urban programming in environments and, and or context where social assistance was previously or primarily a rural affair. So examples that come to mind include Sierra Leone, Malawi, uh, Ghana. And, and pivoting to an urban environment was a novel experience for many government officials who previously only worked at a rural level. So now they needed to work with local actors in urban environments so they now had to work with city councils or block leaders in township areas and in some cases workers' organizations. So this is really quite new for a lot of these a lot of these officials. And then another dimension of the urban expansion was large-scale registration. And sometimes this was done door to door. Sometimes it used existing lists of informal workers. Um, there's the digitization element as well that Maya was referring to. So I think this urban dimension, I mean, there are many aspects to it, but I've just highlighted a couple. Coming back to Maya again, are there shifts that have occurred that you think have received less attention that you think perhaps should be better known or better understood? Um, yes, actually. And it's quite linked to what Ed was saying about the role of local actors. So what we've seen in the very early stages of the pandemic was that community-based organizations were the first responders in their communities. Sometimes even like neighborhoods, towns and villages would set up what they would call as like volunteer emergency groups to provide immediate assistance to like elderly and persons with disabilities. And this was especially relevant in countries that had very stringent lockdown measures and had not yet implemented social protection programs. But a lot of these arrangements were community-based and they have been referenced in the literature. They have definitely. But I don't believe they have been extensively explored um, to allow like a deeper exploration on how they can be streamlined into shock response of social protection in the future. One country that we saw 
utilizing these volunteer networks in the implementation of emergency responses was Syria. So in Syria, they had these neighborhood networks that were set up, and these networks were tasked with the responsibility of assisting people, specifically persons with disabilities and elderly persons in their neighborhoods, with the newly established digital registration process. And the point of that was so that they wouldn't be excluded from these programs just because they don't know how to complete the process. And also we saw that in Egypt, where the ministry had um, worked alongside local actors and NGOs in the delivery of assistance. I think the agility of these networks is uh, something we can learn from and something that countries can definitely utilize in the future. It's something, you know, a major shift that, that I've seen that I think has received less attention. I don't know if it's just the way that I've been viewing these issues, but it's, it's the leveraging of social insurance mechanisms. So two of the countries I've worked on in the past year where that's occurred are Jordan and Fiji. And in Jordan, it wasn't just about using the social insurance mechanism to provide financial support. It was also about a drive to register as many informal workers and firms as possible. And they were able to register the same number of firms in 12 months that they usually registered in four to five years. So there was a huge push for that formalization agenda. And I think that social assistance is, is so dominant for many social protection practitioners, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, that I count myself amongst that, that perhaps we don't always fully grasp the potential opportunities presented by social insurance. So I think it'd be really good to give more prominence to, to those issues going forward. Maya, what about mistakes or missteps? What have we learned about what not to do? So what we've learned from the COVID response is definitely that during a crisis, there's never a one-size-fits-all solution at all. Redundancies or, in other words, like multiple pathways for registration and for payment delivery are vital to ensure that all people can access these services. And I've previously mentioned how digitization can be a double-edged sword, and this is where we can consider the importance of having multiple pathways. One really interesting example that I've read in the literature is about fingerprint biometric verification and how it was used during COVID to verify the identities of beneficiaries in some countries. But one thing about fingerprint verification is that persons with disabilities, for example, or those who have been engaged in manual labor for a long time might have eroded fingerprints, which means their identity can't be verified through this mechanism. So that's just an example for why different approaches or to registration or to payments or to just beneficiary identification mechanisms are important for persons with disabilities, for people living in remote areas, and people who just generally don't have that much access to technology is needed so that we can reach all, basically, and ensure that inclusion covers all people. Yeah, I certainly agree on the accessibility and, and the inclusion point that Maya raised. And another lesson, I think, is planning for the entire delivery chain right from the start. And I worked on one country where there was a, a new cash transfer program involved a huge registration process, a couple of hundred thousand households, and the selected payment modality was to use mobile money. Now, the assumption of the registration phase was that the information provided to enumerators would be accurate, you know, the right phone number or the right ID or the name or whatever. So they took that as given. Eligibility was de 
determined that went into the MIS and then they tried to, to make payments to these people and then they realized that so many of the households, the information that was in the mobile wallet did not match the information held by the MIS. So the mobile network operators needed to do a huge process of, of verifying, getting new information and verifying it, this know your customer information. So I think planning for that right from the start, perhaps by getting the mobile network operators involved at the registration phase, might have prevented issues arising further down the track. So considering all of these uh, changes, advances, some of the setbacks, what do you think are the changes that will persist and the lessons that we may have ultimately learned? I think some of these things will persist. Time will tell. There's certainly a lot of talk and and advice and suggestions that things should change. It's not the first time that people have talked about the missing middle. It's not the first time people have talked about the importance of formalisation. But, you know, if I think back to previous crises of 2008-09, there were steps taken after that to strengthen systems, which then have been leveraged in this response. So, you know, I can look at it glass half full and say optimistically that, that some lessons will be learned and carried through. But at the moment, I'd say it's probably still too early to tell whether there'll be a sustained effort for the coming years. I think some of the changes in processes related to social protection might stick for the future, building this on like digitization as an example. Lots of countries who piloted or utilized digital payment mechanisms or digital registration mechanisms during COVID, we've seen them shift towards utilizing that across the majority of uh, their social assistance programs. One example here is Egypt, which had utilized prepaid cards for the first time during the pandemic. And this is something that they're considering implementing for their main cash assistance program, even beyond the emergency response. I think one thing that is more of a hope for the future is to maintain the strong coordination and communication between different governmental agencies. And also what Ed was saying about the communication between different international agencies and governments as well, just so we can shift away from parallel social protection systems and move towards like strengthening actual national social protection systems. This is a hope, but... Hopefully it can, it can happen or be achieved. The nature of the COVID pandemic and, of course, the response has changed a lot since those early lockdowns in 2020 that first triggered the major need for social protection. Vaccines have since become a focus. There is less tolerance than ever for those kinds of lockdowns. And all the while, variants have continued to power the rapid spread of the virus. How are social protection responses changing to meet the emerging needs and demands? And where should the focus be in terms of research and knowledge sharing for the future? In terms of research and knowledge, one thing I would uh, suggest is is just for us to be mindful as social protection practitioners of how a Ministry of Finance might view a continued investment in social protection for for the coming years. So be mindful of that and, and perhaps thinking differently and, and, and thinking, well, to what extent does social protection contribute to other issues that might be on the mind of a Ministry of Finance? To what extent does it support stability? How does it underpin prosperity? How does it contribute to you know, multiplier effect in the local economy? What impact does it have on reducing uh, income poverty and then potentially growth? 
How does it support human capital? How does it support economic reforms? How can it be climate smart? If a the government wants their wants their country or their economy to be climate smart. How can social protection help? So I think just putting ourselves in someone else's shoes, perhaps, and then thinking about their interests and how social protection can also support their agenda. So what we've seen from social protection measures being implemented is that as lockdowns were eased, as economies opened up, countries moved away from providing social assistance benefits and they were thinking more about how to plan for social insurance and labor market measures. So in some cases, this was also more industry-specific benefits, for example, tailored towards hard-to-hit sectors. We've seen Egypt targeting the tourism industry a lot. So that's something interesting to consider. And it links back to what Ed was saying about bringing more people into the conversation, such as the Ministry of Finance, And this is where you can talk about the effect of social protection on economic recovery as a whole for the country and considering it as one of the vital pillars for economic recovery in the future. But another thing within research and knowledge sharing that I would be interested to see in the future is more process evaluations of countries' main emergency responses. Ed mentioned a good point about thinking through the entire delivery chain from the beginning of planning for different programs. And within process evaluations, it's always good to look at grievance redress mechanisms, which are often terribly excluded and not so focused on, because the mechanisms would entail either uh, utilizing a helpline or utilizing a web-based platform. And this is where also accessibility concerns come in as well. So yeah, in terms of research, I think that's what I would be interested in seeing. How can global initiatives like IPCIG's tracker and initiatives of that ilk remain relevant as the pandemic evolves? So I think the the tracker is a great way for us to get a global sense of the social protection response and see what has worked and what hasn't worked, what has been Uh, a program that allowed, for example, an extension in the duration of its provision and so on. But I think a focus on recovery would require adhering more to country-specific research outputs that at the end of the day consider what the country priorities are and what their needs are in the upcoming period. Yeah, I I think the leading papers, the IPC dashboard, they've had a huge role but staying up to date has been is really crucial for those sorts of products. And it, that's a massive task because staying up to date across so many different countries can be very substantial. And one, one thing I want to flag here, I've just done some recent work that involved going back to look at what happened in, in previous crises. And it was so useful to have evidence documented of the impacts of, of those different crises. Uh, and very useful to draw on that now in understanding and, and advising on the role for social protection over the coming period. So I think that sort of work is relevant in real time for what should we do right now in the next six months or the next 12 months, 24 months, but then also perhaps in five years or seven years or 10 years, that information, that documented evidence could still be extremely useful to, to decision makers in the future. Just to finish off today, I'd be interested in your personal reflections on this global effort to provide advice, track and share knowledge on the COVID response. I mean, did you ever think that social protection would receive so much attention and your reflections on why this kind of work is important? 
I actually never envisaged social protection to receive so much attention. But then with COVID, this became like everyday words that we heard on the news, we heard in conversation, we heard in speeches. And I think this is genuinely great because it sheds light just on how important social protection is to every society. Yeah, for me, I think the number of dimensions. First, I can, I've can i now been able to tell my parents what I do and explain that they actually understand it. You know, so now it's a you know, very concrete example of the work that I do. And relatedly, a, a very large proportion of the population, including in developed countries, recognise the importance of social protection and previously might have not given it the credence or, or realised that it was significant. And so that's been critical. Edward and Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much, Joe. Really glad to be part of this. Before we go, we'll end with our quick wins segment. And this month, we've asked our guests, Maya and Edward, to each bring in a piece of news or research that have sparked their interest and that we think you, the audience, should know more about. Maya, what have you brought for us today? Thanks, Joe. So personally, I'm very interested in obligatory donation that Muslims have to make. And it's basically the social welfare system in Islam. And what I was very impressed with during the pandemic is the increased role of state-led zakat funds, which collect zakat, in the social protection response generally. And most particularly was that we've seen them coordinate a lot more with governmental social assistance providers. So a great example that I'd like to highlight here is the Informal Workers Cash Assistance Program in Egypt, which was coordinated and jointly implemented between the Ministry of Labor and the Zakat House, so to speak. So the Ministry of Labor provided cash assistance for informal workers for a three-month period. And after that, the Egyptian Zakat House financed an additional six months to those that were not able to benefit from the ministry's cash assistance. So they utilized the same eligibility criteria, almost the same registration mechanism, and just the same benefit amount and so on. And before the pandemic at the IPC, we've conducted some research on the operation of Zakat funds in the social protection sector. And what we've seen that in the past, Zakat funds often operated in isolation from social protection institutions or other governmental social assistance providers. And they had really limited coordination uh, with these entities, despite having similar objectives and eligibility criteria sometimes. So uh, for this reason, this coordination example that I gave you is a great win in my books, really. Thank you, Maya. It's fascinating to hear how those informal and formal safety nets are coming together in a relatively new way as a result of the pandemic. Thank you so much for bringing that example. Ed, over to you. What do you have for us today? Thanks, Joe. Well, I've got two resources that I've been using a lot in the last um, year or so. They both came out last year, and, and I think they've been uh, extremely helpful and, and timely. One is by Thomas Bowen and Gabby Smith, and it's about adaptive social protection and the delivery chain. This spells out the nine stages of, of the delivery chain with a lens of shock responsive um, or adaptive social protection. 
And I've been using it in reviewing and analyzing responses and also in, in, in thinking about the design of social protection responses. So another key resource is the transform component and the transform guidance on, on shock responsive social protection. And in particular, there's a table seven, which I find incredibly useful as like a one or two page summary of, of key issues to consider when, when trying to diagnose a, a social protection system and understand what the priority issues should be. Quite a few countries come to space during code and say, look, I want to make my social protection system here more shock responsive. What should I do? And so this, this, this summary table, which has a description of, of key actions separated into themes. So you could, you know, you could potentially tackle one or, or more of those themes or those areas and it gives you questions to ask against each of those themes to try and understand what's going to be of most use, what is going to be technically feasible, but also, and very importantly, what's going to be politically feasible. Thank you again to Edward and Maya, and we'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes for this episode. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe via your favourite podcast provider and go ahead, leave us a review. Back next month. See you then.